formative things that we center ourselves around is scripture. And each of these weeks during this series, we've chosen to actually read the passage we're going to learn from. The reason being is that how we know who we are and whose we are is this book called the Bible, right? And every passage in it is inspired by God and it's for our benefit to listen to it and to compare our lives towards it. So I'm going to read today's passage and then at the end I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord and you'll respond thanks be to God. Okay, let's do it. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chizza, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm the community life pastor here at Mosaic. Thanks, Connor. And um, this morning, I was, uh, I was at Starbucks, the one right here on, on Cesar Chavez, and they always do these, like, factoid question things. They're just the most random questions that you would never know the answer to. And this morning's question was, how many species of shark live at the Oregon coast? And that popped into my mind when we were talking about baptism. <laughs> I don't know. It's not related, but uh, no, it'll be wonderful. Hey, it's really good to be with you. Um, if you've got your Bible or your Bible app, would you please open to Luke chapter 8? We are nine months in um, to this teaching series on the book of Luke. And we finally made it to chapter 8. Um, last week and this week, um, I had mentioned this last week, but, but these two weeks are, are somewhat unique in their content. And that uh, we're, we're following the teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, his miracles, his, his authority. And in these passages, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, we get a snapshot of the people who are following Jesus. You might remember last week was a story of Jesus uh, being invited to a dinner by a religious leader, a Pharisee named Simon, and, and as they're reclined at a table and they're eating, a woman interrupts the scene, this woman who is, who is a prostitute of, of poor report, and she comes to the feet of Jesus, and she cries, she wets his feet, his feet, she washes his feet with her hair and pours perfume, and it's an amazing story of this woman who demonstrates what it means to repent and what it means to have a life changed to follow after Jesus. And this week, we get another snapshot, another picture of the people who followed after Jesus, who listened to his teaching, were healed by him, changed, altered the course of their lives to be with him. Now, uh, Phil just read this, and it's, it's three verses, and it's, it's sometimes those kind of verses or, or a paragraph that we can rush over from one story to the next, and it kind of gives some detail of where they are and who's there. And, and, and we really wanted to slow down and capture what uh, this, this story, what these three verses are pointing at, the scene that these three verses create. Uh, Jesus is beginning his second tour of Galilee. Um, Luke chapter 4 is his first tour, and, and in Luke 4, it's just him and a few other people. Now, 
it's him and his 12 disciples and these, these three women, Mary, who's called Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, and other men and women who are following him. This larger group of people who are leaned in to his teaching and who are following him. And in these three verses, we're given this scene of, of people who are different in many ways. There's men, there's women, there's different vocations, there's, there's different stations of life. We're given this scene, and it, and it leads us to these two questions. One, who does Jesus call to be part of his kingdom? Who did he call 2,000 years ago? Who does he call today to be part of his kingdom? And then secondly, what does it mean when Jesus calls us? When he invites us to be part of his kingdom. So make your way to Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive into this text. Father, um, we're just grateful uh, to be in this place, um, to be gathered here physically, to be gathered online, to be singing these songs of truth, um, to be opening this text and, and reading about the people who followed you, whose lives were changed, who became part of your kingdom, knowing that this was true for them 2,000 years ago, and it's true for us today. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you speak to us, that you call us, that you challenge us, that you meet us with grace and you meet us with conviction as we are discovering more and more every week, every day, who Jesus is and what it means to alter our lives, to follow after him and to be part of his kingdom and his mission. And so we thank you for this in your name. Amen. So between 6th grade and 7th grade, I was part of a summer basketball Little League. And I had been a part of a lot of teams in Little League basketball. None of them were good. And I, I, don't, I don't believe it's a correlation of my talents, but it likely is. Uh, but I just was never on a good team, and this summer was no different. We only won one game. In fact, we had a game we got blown out so bad, we only scored one basket. It was a miserable season. But my best friend at the time, Danny Diaz, he was on a team that was excellent. They won every game. They had this all-star basketball player named Corin Jackson. He was phenomenal. He was kind of their, their go-to guy for every play. And their team did so well that at the end of the season, they were invited into a regional tournament. And so I, I went with the team because my best friend was, was on that team. And we traveled to a neighboring city, and we started playing, or they started playing in this tournament, and they were doing phenomenal. They're winning game after game, and it's single elimination, meaning if your team loses, you're packing home, and, and they keep winning and winning, and, and there was a break about midday to go get lunch, and the team is just so excited, and I'm walking with the team, and I'm so excited, and I keep saying, guys, we're doing so good. Man, we won that last game. Those, they were so tall, and we beat them, and we're doing so good. We're doing so good, and Corwin Jackson stops. And everyone stops. And he turns around, he looks at me, and he's like, what's this we? What's this we? You're, you're not on our team. You're not playing. You're not doing anything. You're just watching us. You're, you can cheer, but you have to stay on the sidelines. Now, I was pretty embarrassed. It was pretty sad. It was kind of mean for Corn to treat me this way. It's fodder for therapy years down the road. But his point is true. Man, I was a fan. I got to watch, but I, I wasn't actually part of what was happening. I wasn't part of the victories. I wasn't part of the team. I couldn't quite share in that victory. I could just appreciate it from a distance. 
This kingdom that Jesus is bringing to this world, that we read about in these three verses, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, the good news of his kingdom, is one of belonging. It's one that people aren't asked to appreciate from afar, to celebrate in Jesus' victories from the sidelines, but rather invited to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to listen to his teaching, to follow the patterns of his life, and to be part of his kingdom. This was the invitation that Jesus is teaching. And in Luke chapter 8, that Phil just read, it says this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of this arriving kingdom, his kingdom, not a physical kingdom with borders and boundaries and and political influence and a military, Not not a physical kingdom, but a kingdom of the heart, a kingdom of the spirit that he is establishing. He's proclaiming this good news. It says the 12, his disciples were with him and also some women who he had cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out of. Joanna, his, uh, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. These three verses contain this scene, this, this parade of people who are beginning to follow Jesus, not as fans from afar, but who are being assimilated into his kingdom, into his family, into belonging with one another. This is the picture of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that Jesus is painting in this scene. This radical picture in Luke, or I mean, in First Peter, we're given language for this. First Peter uh, in 2, 9, it says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the good news. This is why the proclaiming of his kingdom is good news. Because people who didn't have belonging, the foreigner, the alien, the overlooked, are now invited into the family and the kingdom of God. This is true for these people in these three verses. This is true for us today. We are invited to belong into the kingdom of God. Not from afar, not appreciating the winds of Jesus from afar, but in his family. And in these three verses, we're given this radical view, this radical worldview that Jesus has of the world and of the people that he is calling to himself. I was having dinner with some, some buds of mine, uh, this was maybe a couple months ago, and one of my friends is really, really excited about cryptocurrency, digital money. Now, we had a 30-minute conversation of him explaining to me over and over what cryptocurrency is, and at the end of the meal, it still sounded made up. I'm not sure I quite understand it. He's made money with it, so I'm very happy for him. But 
But I remember during the Super Bowl, there was this huge push from, from a few of these cryptocurrency generators to, to, uh, to get the word out, to get more people engaged in this currency. And, and I remember seeing all of these commercials uh, with celebrities, with uh, sports players, with, with Jason Bourne. Matt Damon was doing some of these commercials. And it was exciting because if Jason Bourne is buying into cryptocurrency, it must be legit. If that guy who can dunk from the free throw line is buying into cryptocurrency, it must be a real thing. That's kind of how these testimonials work. And if you're starting something new, something that isn't quite understood, you want the testimonies of, of people who are kind of seen as the upper echelon. Jesus does almost the exact opposite. His first recruits are fishermen. People who had very common lives. People who were, were minimally, if educated, at all. Some of the first people that support Jesus are women. In, in our modern sensibilities, women lead in every sphere of life. But 2,000 years ago, they were not given much access to leading and shaping culture. And yet, they're listed among the people who first are following after Jesus. A biblical scholar named uh, David Guzik, he says this, Luke specifically mentions certain women who follow Jesus because this was unusual. Jesus had a different attitude towards women than the religious leaders and teachers of that day. These three women who are mentioned, two of whom uh, are, are, are present in this story as Jesus is proclaiming the good news, and they're faithful to follow him all the way to the point where he is uh, put to death and resurrects, and they're the first people to actually see him after he is resurrected. Jesus has healed them. He's invited them into his family. He's given them the good news that, that, that they now are a people. They now are God's special possession. And they follow him. These women, it said, who actually bankroll and support the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. We know that Jesus was a carpenter. That was his vocation. It's, it's how he paid his bills. But in, from the time that he began his ministry, and we went through this a couple months ago when he, he is in the, the temple and he reads from Isaiah and he says, today this prophecy is being fulfilled. When he stepped into public ministry, we don't actually have a record of him engaging in his vocation. He was supported. These people who found belonging with him are making up the kingdom of God. These three verses give us a snapshot of what Jesus' kingdom looks like, and it's pretty radically different than the world around him at this time. People who weren't expected to be his first followers. People who weren't expected to be his strong endorsement. People who weren't expected to shape culture, to give credential to his teaching. These are the people that Jesus calls to himself and gives us a picture of what the kingdom of God is about. In Genesis chapter 12, we're given the, the, the origin story of the kingdom of God, the original purpose, the original intent of the kingdom of God, and it comes in the form of a promise, a covenant to a person named Abraham. And it says this in 12.1, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples 
of the earth will be blessed through you. This original promise that was realized in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus was an invitation for all peoples. This kingdom that Jesus is bringing, this good news, is arriving. And it doesn't have a preference of people. It doesn't have a preference of race or gender. The kingdom of God doesn't have a preferred nation. He's come for all people to invite them into being God's special possession. This is the invitation that we are given. That we don't watch from afar, that we don't appreciate the truths of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the life of Jesus from afar. But we step into family, into his kingdom, into a kingdom that is, that is complex and challenging and full of different people who think different than us, who look different than us, who have different worldviews than us, who are from different places than us, who have had different life experiences than us. We're invited to belong with one another. An analogy that, that the New Testament uses over and over to kind of help us understand what it looks like to belong is that of a family. And I love that analogy because you, you can't choose your family, right? You, you can't opt in and, and opt out. You're, you're born into a family. These are the people you do life with. And, and, and I have a family. I have three kids who couldn't be more different from each other. It's awesome to watch them try to work it out. But when you're a part of a family, the sense of belonging, it isn't optional. You belong with one another. And this is the picture that Scripture gives us of what it means to be engaged in community with one another, in family. Another biblical scholar named Barclay, he says, it's an amazing thing to find Mary Magdalene with a dark past and Joanna, the lady of the court, in the same company. This, this dynamic of the kingdom of God, a woman who's had a very checkered past is of, of ill reputation, Next to this other woman, Joanna, whose husband is Herod, the, the, the political leader in that region, is over his books. It's a steward of his finances. She would have had great political power. They're standing shoulder to shoulder in the same family of God. What an inspiring picture. How radical and countercultural for Jesus to come and to invite all of these people into belonging with one another. And they're there, and they're not merely watching. They're not just uh, watching from afar, but, but they're engaged and contributing. They're supporting. Jesus' invitation is to come and belong, but, but don't just come and belong. Come and follow me. I'll teach you to do what I do. Come and follow after me. Leave your old ways behind because I'm going to transform you. I'm going to send you. I'm going to commission you to join in this ministry, this work with me of proclaiming the good news to the world around us. We think about this in, in our context. The kingdom of God in our context is, is the church. This, this place where we're called not merely to be spectators, to appreciate from afar, but, but to be in the game, to belong, to be engaged in relationship with one another. 
If we think about this, this idea of the church and we begin to kind of boil it down to its, its core ingredients, uh, a phrase um, that, that helps maybe understand this is ecclesial minimums. Uh, ecclesia is the Greek word for church and, and, and the, the absolute minimums of what it means to be a church. If we were to inventory those, we would look at something like a building. Is this, is this absolutely mission critical for us to be the church? No. It's, it's an amazing gift. I'm glad we have it. I'm glad we get to invest in it. I'm glad that we're here in this city, in this neighborhood, and, and are able to use this space. But if this space went away tomorrow, we, we'd still be the church. In fact, the church of Jesus is exploding in parts of the world where they'll probably never have a building or not anytime soon. No, no. A building is not, is, is not mission critical. Being a nonprofit is not mission critical. Having paid pastors, unpaid staff is not mission critical. The three things that are absolutely necessary for the joining of a church, for us to be the church, to be the kingdom of God together, is worship, its community, and its mission with one another. It's worship that we're fixated on the one true king and celebrating him and telling his good news and telling about his kingdom. It's mission that we're engaged in telling the world about this good news and its community. It's a sense of belonging with one another. This is what makes church. We're called to belong, to worship, and to contribute with one another into the mission of Jesus. The end of, of Matthew um, and his account in verse 28, it's, it's the words of Jesus um, as he is is sending his disciples. Uh, they followed him. They belong. They've done life together. He is, uh, he's healed them. He's restored them. He's trained them. He's taught them. And now he is commissioning and send them. And this is what he says. This is uh, Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. It's a simple instruction of engaging in the mission of Jesus, empowered by Jesus, engaged in telling the world of the good news of his kingdom arriving, and the invitation to belong and to be part of the family of God. And this is universally what we are all commissioned called to do. And I know this, this word call is one that, that can kind of be used in church context a lot, and we don't use that very often. It's, it's not something that's part of my vernacular apart from uh, talking about this. But the idea of call is that I'm invited into something with a sense of purpose. It's not a passive invitation. It's actually what I'm created and commissioned to do. We are given this as our contribution into the kingdom of God, to engage in his work. As we hear these words, I'm wondering what that does in us. Uh, maybe for some of us that's very inspiring. Maybe for some of us that's outright terrifying. Maybe for some of us we feel unprepared or unqualified. And yet, this is what Jesus invites us into. 
to contribute to his kingdom, to belong, to be part, to find family, to find community, and then contribute into the work that he's doing in the world. And when we do this, we become dependent on him. I love in, in the Great Commission that he says at the end, and surely I will be with you always, that we're invited into a work that he is with us and that he prepares us for, that he matures us for. This is how we grow. Listen to these words in Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter 4. This is, this is uh, his plan, the church's plan for maturing for growing in our faith. In 4.1, this is written by Paul, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and is through all. And then in 11 it says, so Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. When we engage in community, not at a passive level, but a sense of belonging, when we're contributing to God's kingdom, we are contributing to the maturing of one another to the discipling and to the growth of one another. For those who find themselves in the second half of life, I never bring clarity to what that is. I'll let you describe that. You have great wisdom to bring to this community. You have wisdom that matures faith, that prepares us that gets us ready for the mission that Jesus has called us to. You're invited to bring that wisdom through relationship into your community. For those of us who are on the younger half, the first half, I realize some of us are probably right on the bubble, right in the middle. But for those of us who find yourself in the first half, you're, you're likely going through challenges through questions of faith that you feel like have never been asked before, experiences that have never been experienced before. But the fact is, people who have gone before you, who have followed Jesus, who have been part of his family, engaged in his mission for years, for decades, for a lifetime, have much to teach. Their relationship, their influence can shape you. When we contribute to the kingdom of God, in the context of relationship, we're maturing and growing one another to be closer to Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. This belonging leads to growth that prepares us for the work that God has for us. For those who feel unprepared and for those who feel unqualified, Jesus invites us to be part of his family and to engage in his mission. And I, 
I know for myself, when I think about that, I, I feel very unqualified. I think about my life, my deficiencies. I'm very aware of my deficiencies. I'm very aware of the broken places in my life. I'm very aware of my weaknesses, and I feel like an insufficient representation of Jesus. And yet, as I, as I read the story of the New Testament, and the people who Jesus called, and the people who engaged in his mission, I actually find myself in, in okay company. There's a story in, in Acts, and after we're finished with the book of Luke, we're going to go into the book of Acts, so I don't know when we'll get there. It'll probably be like a year from now. Uh, but there's a story in the book of Acts, um, and it's with Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, and they're, they're walking into a, a town square, and there is a, a beggar there um, who is paralyzed, and he is saying, do you have anything for me? I'm hungry. I, I, I'm, I'm begging for alms. I'm begging for gold or silver. And, and Peter famously tells him, silver and gold have I not, but, but what I have, I will give. And what does he have? He has, he has the kingdom of God. He has the good news of Jesus. And in that moment, this, this man is, is healed, and he stands up and begins to praise Jesus. This happens in the town square. So, of course, there's a, like just a ruckus. People are, are confused. People are wondering what's happened. And, and Peter and John are, are brought before the religious leaders and are questioned and, and this is what the religious leaders discover about these, these men. This is in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they, being the religious, religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and recognized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The unprepared and the unqualified are invited to stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus to his mission to this world. And you might be feeling how I felt. And I, I don't know if I'm the best representation. I'm all too aware of my brokenness and my flaws. And yet what's amazing is oftentimes those very things that we think disqualify us, those very things that we think make us a weak representation are the very places that God demonstrates the most power in our lives. They become the very stories of redemption that God wants to tell to the world around us. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I, I actually celebrate in my weaknesses. I boast in my weaknesses because in these places, God's strength is able to be displayed and seen. We're invited into this kingdom of belonging and contribution. I'm going to invite our, our band to come up. Mission, community, and worship. These are what it means for you and I to be the church of Jesus together. That we're sharing life with one another. I want to invite you to be thinking about that very question. Who am I doing life with? And who, who is speaking into my life that has followed Jesus longer, that has wisdom, heavenly wisdom to, part, to give me, to help me mature? And who in my life can I look at and say, oh, I, I, I've actually traveled through what you're going through, and I have wisdom to give you? 
Are we sharing our life with one another? Not as spectators, not on the sidelines, but engaged. Are we engaged in contributing the way that these first disciples did? They saw Jesus. They were healed by Jesus. They heard his teaching, and they altered their lives to be part of his mission. And do we worship? One of the ways that, that we honor God, one of the ways that we worship, and we do this most Sundays, is to take these, these pieces of, of, of bread and, and juice that represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and to take them remembering that this kingdom Jesus brought, it came with a price. He believed in this kingdom to the extent he was willing to go to the cross and be resurrected by God's spirit. And we take those elements remembering this is the kingdom and this is our king and we worship him. As we go to the table here in this place or, or at home, I want to I want to invite you to come asking those questions. Who am I sharing my life with? How am I contributed? And where am I worshiping the one true God? Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for a word. Thank you for even simple passages like this and these three verses that, that contain this, this picture of your kingdom that might look different than we expect. Um, and yet it's it's incredibly invitational for us as we find ourselves in that company knowing our own brokenness doesn't disqualify us. Our own mistakes don't make us passed over, but you come to us and you invite us. And so we come to the table today worshiping you and thanking you. Amen, let's worship.